I am Tim from the Super Nerds UK podcast, and you're listening to the Historium podcast from the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of Historium is brought to you by Blueberry. Not the fruit, the podcast hosting service. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, now is the time, and Blueberry is what you should be using to host that podcast. Blueberry is the gold standard for podcast hosting and provides accurate stats, your own WordPress website, and an easy-to-use format for you to get your podcast out into the world. And right now, you can get your first month free. That's right, free. All you have to do is go to orbitaljigsaw.com slash history. That's orbitaljigsaw.com slash history. And start your journey into podcasting right. Hello, everyone. My name is Dominic Perry, and I am the host of the History of Egypt podcast, a podcast telling the story of the ancient Egyptians from their first appearance on the banks of the Nile to the coming of the Roman Empire. You can find the History of Egypt on iTunes and all good podcasting apps, or at egyptianhistorypodcast.com. But right now, you're listening to Historium by Jake Barton, one of the best history podcasts available at the moment. As a fan, I never miss an episode, and I'm always looking forward to what Jake is going to produce next. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy some top-notch storytelling with Historium. I have a confession to make. When I first began pondering the idea of a podcast, I had to choose a topic. I'm interested in a lot of things, but I had to choose something that was specific enough to gain a niche audience, but something that was broad enough to never run out of episode topics. Eventually, I landed on history, because, well, I love history, and everything that's already happened is technically history, giving me a lot to work with. But this is one of those episodes that kind of stretches the definition of history, but I still think it's applicable. But more importantly, I think it's profoundly interesting. So this episode, we're bringing in some biology, some linguistics, some psychology, some literature, and some art to talk about one thing, a color. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 28, New Blue. In the modern world, blue is all around us. On flags, on highway signs, movie posters, superhero costumes. It's on uniforms, advertisements, and candy bars. When asked about your favorite color, well over 30% of you chose blue. One of the first questions children ask is, why is the sky blue? Blue is all over our modern world, but you know where it's strangely rare? Nature. Think about blue animals. There's blue jays, uh, peacocks, some fish, but when you compare that to other colors, you see that natural blue is quite rare. Now think about blue foods. Blueberries come to mind, but they're actually a deep indigo or purple. Blue flowers are actually man-made and don't naturally occur in the wild. There's a reason for this rarity. 
See, pigments for any animal's color are not made from scratch. They come from what they consume. Animals take in certain pigments and then use them to form their own color. A prime example of this is pink flamingos. See, flamingos aren't naturally pink. They're born completely white and then slowly become pink as they grow up because of their diet, which consists almost entirely of red crustaceans. So as far as color goes, you are what you eat. However, this is not the case with blue. Almost no animals have blue pigment. Well, then how are those blue animals blue? Well, they create blue in a different way. If you zoom in on any blue butterfly wing or peacock feather, on the microscopic level, you'll see what looks like little Christmas tree-like structures. These microscopic structures absorb every color on the visible spectrum except one, blue. So these animals produce no blue pigment, but rely on these tiny structures on their feathers or butterfly wings or scales to appear blue. Or at least blue to us humans. Many animals have a color spectrum that differs from ours, some quite drastically. Dogs, for example, can only see in black and white and blue and yellow. As humans, we have three different types of color receptive cones in our eyes. So when we look up at a rainbow, we see the classic Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet. However, dogs don't have red sensitive cones in their eyes. So when a dog looks up at that same rainbow, it would only see blue, green, and yellow. The rainbow from a dog's perspective would only be about half as thick as the rainbow from a human's perspective. Let's take another animal, an eagle. An eagle would look at that same rainbow and see even more colors in the infrared spectrum beyond red and into the ultraviolet spectrum beyond violet. There's no way for humans to even comprehend those colors, but eagles can see them just fine. That same rainbow from an eagle's perspective would be about twice as wide as the one we see, even though it's the exact same thing. Now for an extreme example, the mantis shrimp. Mantis shrimp are sea-dwelling shrimp around the size of a human finger. These colorful little guys have huge eyes that protrude from their little bodies. Dogs have two color receptive cones in their eyes. Humans have three cones. Eagles have four cones. Mantis shrimp have 16 different color receptive cones in their eyes. So when a mantis shrimp sees that same rainbow, it would almost be as wide as the entire sky, while also being able to distinguish colors in between the colors that we know. They have the most complex visual system of any animal on Earth. But as humans, we are confined to our own visible color spectrum. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet. But how do we designate where one color ends and the other begins? And does that ever change over time? This leads us to William Gladstone. Gladstone was a prominent politician, eventually becoming the Prime Minister of England in the 1800s. Four times. Gladstone was obsessed with Homer. Not that Homer, the ancient Greek Iliad Odyssey writing Homer. Anyway, William Gladstone was obsessed with Homer's writings. He pored over the Iliad and the Odyssey with an almost religious curiosity. Early in his career, he actually wrote a three-volume book on Homer. In it, he discusses many ideas about the Greek writer, but perhaps the most famous was Homer's strange use of color. For example, in the Odyssey, Homer mentions the wine-dark sea. Now you may be thinking, oh, that's just Homer being poetic or allegorical, but he uses that same term, wine dark, to describe the color of oxen. He describes sheep with violet wool, metal as also being a shade of violet. He describes both human faces and honey 
as green. The sky was labeled as bronze. Homer seemed to be describing everything wrong. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait, wasn't Homer blind? Well, there's debate whether Homer even existed or not. Most modern scholars believe the name Homer actually referred to a group of writers. And based on the evocative descriptions in the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's hard to imagine that the author was blind. Anyway, Homer was a personal hero of Gladstone. So the idea that Homer could be so perceptive in his writings, yet so foolish when it came to colors, simply baffled him. He eventually pored over the Odyssey page by page, counting each time a color appeared. Black occurred 170 times, white 100 times, red 13 times, green and yellow both just under 10, and the color blue zero times. In fact, in all of Homer's poems, he never once refers to the color blue. Gladstone quickly began searching through other ancient Greek texts and found similar results, strange uses of color, and not one of them blue. Gladstone concluded that Homer was colorblind and that all of the ancient Greeks were colorblind as well. Although it sounds ridiculous, it seemed to be the only logical explanation for him. A few years later, Lazarus Geiger, a German linguist who studied ancient texts, found it wasn't just the Greeks who had no mention of blue. He looked at old Chinese manuscripts, ancient Icelandic sagas, the Hebrew Bible, Indian hymns, all of them lacked the color blue. Here's what Lazarus Geiger said about it. Quote, These hymns of more than 10,000 lines are brimming with descriptions of the heavens. Scarcely is there any subject evoked more frequently. The sun and reddening dawn's display of color, day and night, clouds and lightning, the air and the ether, are unfolded before us over and over in splendor and vivid fullness. But there is only one thing that no one would ever learn from those ancient songs. And that is that the sky is blue. Upon further research, Geiger realized that the order in which all of these ancient languages developed words for certain colors was universal. First, every language has black and white, or dark and light. Red is always the next color, then yellow, then green. And always, very last and very late, blue. The ancient Greeks in the time of Homer had five colors black, white, red, green, and metallic. As later researchers confirmed, the order in which colors entered languages are largely the same. Many anthropologists and neuroscientists today view it this way. Languages produce words for things we see a lot. So naturally, the first colors would be light or white and dark or black because of day and night. Next, blood from hunting, injuries, and menstruation was quite common for early humans. Thus, the color red shows up early. Browns, greens, and yellows show up next because they're relatively common in nature and were necessary to determine whether soil was fertile or a fruit was ripe. Like I talked about earlier, blue is exceptionally rare in nature and was encountered so rarely that humans didn't need a word for it. Now hold on, I know what you're thinking, but Jake, the sky is blue, the ocean is blue. Well, not so fast. Most languages include what we see as blue under the name of the color for green. They refer to the sky as green, and many ancient maps have a greenish color for their oceans. So specific blues are very rare in nature, and thus didn't require a specific word for them. So does this mean that ancient humans couldn't see blue? Well, we don't know. We probably never will. 
Does this mean that ancient humans saw the world differently than us? Absolutely. Our language shapes the way we view the world. We see the world based on how we categorize it. So when did blue show up in languages? Well, around 4,000 years ago, ancient Egyptians managed to reliably create a blue dye. And sure enough, the first recorded language to use the word blue is Egyptian. Through Egyptian trade networks and expensive dyes using indigo and ultramarine, slowly other languages gained the word blue. But still, the color blue was rare, with only the wealthy being able to afford these blue dyes and paints. But one day, a dye maker named Dispa was making red dye using cochineal, an extract from insects, and potash, an early form of potassium. As he was making the red dye, he was baffled when it came out vibrant blue. He went to his supply of potash and found that it had been contaminated with animal blood. The iron in that blood had changed the color. By accident, he had just created an affordable, long-lasting blue dye. It was labeled Prussian blue for its early use in Prussian military uniforms and was soon popular across the globe. It invigorated painters and artists around the world for they now had access to an affordable new color. Another utilization of this blue was in architecture with the blueprint, which eliminated the need for architectural drawings to be copied by hand. But blue's main use was in clothing. Uniforms for the Navy, police, and postal service nearly all became blue. The working class was soon referred to as blue collar, and rugged denim jeans put blue everywhere. The color blue has become a massive part of our modern lives, even to the point of our world, upon being viewed from a massive distance, being referred to as the pale blue dot. But that view may not be objective. In 1998, linguists and anthropologists went to visit the Himba tribe in East Africa. The tribe was still semi-nomadic and consisted mostly of hunter-gatherers. With them, they brought color wheels to analyze the Himba language. When presented with a color palette of different shades of green, with one very obvious blue, they could not reliably pick out that blue. However, when presented with a palette of dozens of different shades of green, they had a name for each one. They can distinguish a slightly different shade of green, while most people cannot see any difference. Their language directly affects their perception of the world. Each and every human views the world based on their upbringing, culture, and language, and all of these things have changed over the course of history. Even if we can't ever know the answer, I don't think I'll ever stop wondering if a human thousands and thousands of years ago would look up and see the same color sunset that I do. So the question, why is the sky blue, actually has two answers. One is because blue light waves scatter when they hit our atmosphere, and two, well, it's because we have a word for it. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode was a bit different than usual, but I found the topic to be too fascinating to resist. Definitely let me know if you like this episode or this type of episode, because I have a lot of topics in a similar vein as this one that I may release as bonus episodes later in the year. You can also tell me what you think by writing a review on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen. That's the best way to increase visibility for the show. You can also find Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Right now, I'm in the process of transitioning into podcasting full-time. So if you'd like to help make this financially viable, Patreon is the best place to donate. As always, thanks for listening.